Welcome to International Law Talk of Walters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. Well, welcome to this latest edition of Walters Kluwer's International Law Talk. I'm Esme Sherlow, an Associate Professor at the Australian National University's College of Law and an Associate Editor of the Kluwer Arbitration Blog. I have the privilege of having Mariel Dinsey as a guest today. Mariel is an International Commercial and Investment Arbitration Specialist and Secretary General of Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre. Prior to joining the centre, Mariel was a partner at CMS and co-head of the Global CMS International Arbitration Group. She worked in private practice for almost two decades and has experience of both civil and common law jurisdictions, acting as both counsel and arbitrator. Welcome, Mariel. It's a real honour to have you joining the podcast today. Thanks so much, Esme. The pleasure is all mine. I'm very happy to be here and very much looking forward to an engaging discussion. Thanks, Mariel. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it too. And I, I want to dive straight in, focusing first on the increased institutionalisation we're seeing in international dispute resolution nowadays. And for arbitration in particular, numerous bodies are increasingly engaging in the field to achieve a more systematic administration of international dispute resolution processes. And certain benefits can arise from that increased institutionalisation, including the capacity for institutions themselves to capture and showcase their approaches to common cross-cutting issues that come up in the arbitration proceedings they administer, including where those proceedings involve distinct disputes and rules and parties. And so my first question is really, how has the centre sought to leverage the unique insights it gains as an administering institution to distill information for its users' related to these cross-cutting procedural issues that it sees? Oh, thanks, Esme. That's a really good question. I think from our perspective, the first thing that springs to mind for me is our HKIAC case digest tool. And, and just to take a step back from that for one moment, I mean, one of the things that I was thought about a lot when I came into this role for private practice was that um, it's it's very, very important for the legitimacy of an institution that you are transparent about how decisions are made in the institution. So while HKIC is what we'd like to call a light-touch institution in the way we administer and particularly with things like scrutiny of awards, we are very, very concerned to make known to the public just how robust our in, internal decision-making dis, um, processes are. And that's where Case Digest camp comes into play. So Case Digest is not so much a tool as, an, as it is an initiative to make the HKIC's internal procedures more transparent for our users. Um, it offers insight into our procedural decision-making, including the analyses of our standing committees. So we have two standing committees that are relevant for case management, uh, the Appointments Committee and the Proceedings Committee. Um, as the name suggests, the Appointments Committee deals with all issues surrounding the appointment of arbitrators and the proceedings committee deals with things like consolidation of arbitrations, joinder requests and single arbitration under multiple contract issues. So we look at um, what these standing committees have decided in relation to different procedural issues and if we see a case that's particularly unique or particularly indicative of a new trend or throws up another interesting issue, uh, we will essentially use what we produce internally anyway as a summary for our 
council members in a, in a redacted way and make it available on HKIAC Case Digest. Uh, we also provide case summaries to CLUA to the same end uh, because we think it's particularly important that these kind of decision-making processes are disseminated not just on our own platform but also on third-party flat platforms so that users of CLUA, for example, have access to the same in- information and become more aware of HKIAC's robust practices as a result. Uh, we were very pleased that Case Digest won the GAR Innovation Award in 2022. We do think that it's very innovative and we were glad that GAR saw it the same way. Um, at the moment, we've got it searchable by applicable rules, subject matter and keywords. Uh, once more case summaries are uploaded, we will also have another look at that and see if there are more, more factors that we can include or more search terms that we can include to ensure that people who come onto the platform looking for particular information are actually finding it in an intuitive manner. So that's, that's basically what Case Digest is and it's something where we're very pleased to have launched. Many congratulations on the award. I mean, it sounds like it was really well-deserved and, it, and it's great to see this institutional commitment to increase transparency and, and this service to your users too. You, you mentioned briefly there that you're hoping to continue to expand the Case Digest tool. What exactly would that entail and, and what would the ideal Case Digest tool uh, look like down the track? I noticed when looking at, at the Digest uh, tool that several of the available case abstracts relate to the issue of expedited procedures. And so uh, I guess a question for you is, are, are expedited procedures or requests for expedited procedures a common occurrence in cases administered by the centre? They are generally. I, I looked into these statistics myself, of course, in preparation for this, and we've had 13 to date so far in 2023. And if you look at the last three years beforehand, we had 20 in 2022, 23 expedited procedure applications in 2021, and 28 in 2020. Uh, so I think we're well on track for this to be in line with previous years. And compared to our, our total caseload, which was last year, about 250 administered arbitrations, it's not a huge portion, but we do think that that's probably going to be uh, a trend that will change in the coming years to, to be on the increase. Uh, in terms of the selection for Case Digest, uh, it's not necessarily reflective of how frequent we see that type of case. It's more that we think it raises interesting procedural issues. And ex- expedited procedures as an application that people can make under our use, often make, under, under our rules, I should say, often makes the cut because it develops our practices with respect to the issues that come up in that particular application, including, for example, the monetary thresholds, whether or not we extend the six-month time limit, the power to disapply expedited procedures if, for example, the parties are running out of time because as you may or may not not know, there's a strict six-month time limit under the rules. So there's a lot of different things that can come up in, in that context and there are always issues that are put to our proceedings committee, of course. So there's a lot of jurisprudence, for want of a better word, around that particular issue. I have just on, on expedited procedures generally, this is a very important part of our rules and we're actually very pleased that it's it seems to be on the increase Uh, because we're always trying to be as efficient and as effective as possible. And we do think that the expedited procedures, if applied properly and used properly, will provide or do provide a very viable alternative to a fully-fledged arbitration proceeding. And given that we do have quite a few lower-value disputes at our institution, as many institutions in APAC have, 
we think it's a it's a mechanism that mechanism that could actually be used even more um, to ensure that users are getting an effective and quick procedure if they if they desire to have one. Thinking again about kind of transparency that's achieved through some of these tools, often um, the discussions of transparency in, in international arbitration focus particularly on on the benefits that the public generally might derive from uh, transparency. But some of the initiatives being implemented by the centre that might be classified under that label of of pro-transparency measures also strongly benefit parties to proceedings at the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre. And I I wonder if you have views about how um, parties specifically can benefit from having access to the types of collations that are achieved through things like the, the Case Digest tool. I think, I think there's a few general points about in answer to your question and probably a few specific ones. I think just generally as an institution, we live from the fact that people put our clauses into their contracts. So people need to trust in what they're, do, in what they're getting when they agree to an HKIC arbitration. So for me at least, above all, providing that kind of information is just reassuring users as to the robustness of our of our procedures, but it's not just reassurance. I think one of the key elements of this is understanding what we do, because institutions can sometimes seem a little bit like black boxes, and you don't really know what goes on in the inside. And while that may have been de rigueur for the last century, I think just generally in the 21st century, what you're seeing is just people demanding to understand what's going on. And from an institutional perspective, that's obviously a huge concern from us that we're meeting the expectations of our users. So putting case summaries on Case Digest, even where the confidential information is redacted, it still gives users an insight into how decisions were dis- or decisions were made in cases that may or may not be similar to their case. So if I was a user who was thinking about whether or not I should apply for consolidation or a single arbitration to be pursued under multiple contracts, one thing that I would do would be to look on Case Digest to see what was up there, to see how consolidation or single arbitration under multiple contracts decisions were decided in different cases. And that would give me an idea as to how this would proceed if I were to go ahead with what I had in mind. So I think that's a very important aspect that we're also trying to manage when we put cases up on Case Digest. However, I should say that there's no guarantee of predictability. Um, We do put that disclaimer on the Case Digest Digest website itself um, so that people also through using this tool should not be lulled into a false sense of security uh, since so many decisions are so fact-dependent. So it's important to keep in mind that while that will give you some very useful guidance as to how your case might go, there's no guarantee there. And if you want to go ahead with one of those procedural mechanisms, um, obviously the same robust um, processes will be applied, but there's obviously no guarantee of the same outcome. Mm, I think I think it's a really important point you've made about kind of the diffuse effects of transparency, including the capacity for this type of public accounting for decisions to increase confidence in the institution, even for parties who who maybe don't encounter these types of procedural issues in their own proceedings. Um, so really, I think kind of two layers of, of impact and importance for, for parties um, to proceedings before the centre. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
Kluwer's practical insights aims to similarly share information related to key procedural steps in arbitral proceedings with country and institution-specific notes, then providing more information about how those issues are dealt with under applicable procedural rules. And based on positive feedback received in relation to to the practical insights, um, uh, particularly around emergency arbitral uh, proceedings. I understand that the team is currently preparing further notes on expedited proceedings. And I wonder if you have particular views about how parties um, to proceedings uh, at the centre could benefit from these sorts of practical guides by external um, publishers like Walters Kluwer. I think uh, generally we always have sort of an arsenal of practical guides at our ready when we are drafting our agendas for our committee. So just just by way of a short background explanation, what we do at the centre is we prepare what we what we call agendas, which are in fact summaries of a case that is put toward put to our proceedings or our appointments committee, depending on what the issue is. And with them always, of course, having full access to all the case documents as well. But we prepare prepare this as a service for our standing committees. Um, Obviously, it's very important that we get that analysis right in terms of the legal principles on which we're relying. So one of the the resources that we would use uh, is to look at practical guides on particular jurisdictions. I mean, obviously, with respect to some issues, we might be the authority on that issue in a jurisdiction. So there are it's, it's kind of a horses for courses approach. But I think in terms of the, the users that um, are looking to bring an HKIC arbitration, for example, that will give them a general rundown of what how their arbitration would likely run in our jurisdiction or if they're looking at an expedited procedure, what kind of prerequisites they'd have to uh, fulfil in order to get within the expedited procedure and what that actually would mean for the process of the arbitration. Uh, I think users could use that as a precursor to legal advice or to accompany it or just to give them a general understanding of how the jurisdiction operates. But, of course, there's no substitute for getting into the detail. So if parties are looking to commence an arbitration, there would be additional steps that should be undertaken Um, in order to make sure they're complying with everything that's required to make sure that they have a valid commencement of the procedure. I want to turn now to uses of a technology as an aid in arbitral proceedings. Um, And I I note that Clua, uh, for example, is increasingly developing data-driven tools created with the help of AI, including to identify relationships between actors in the arbitration community. And there's been a lot of really interesting scholarly work uh, along the same lines. I understand that the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre also has a fairly state-of-the-art Case Connect platform that leverages technology to facilitate a smooth dispute resolution process for parties to HKIAC proceedings. What are the features of the Case Connect platform for our our listeners who, who aren't familiar with it? So HKIAC Case Connect is an online case management platform that was developed for the convenience and the security of parties and tribunals. We were the first major institution worldwide to launch an online case management platform and it was launched on the 28th of October in 2021 in the midst of the pandemic when everything was going digital and although we'd been working on it for quite a bit of time before the pandemic started, we thought this was an opportune time to do it simply because you were seeing um, 
you were seeing adjustments to established procedures in a lot of the institutions simply because people weren't in the office. And I know that other institutions, for example, at around that time started accepting documents electronically that would not have been accepted electronically before the pandemic started. But for us, the online case management platform is basically there as an opt-in currently. Uh, We are seeing increased interest in it. And it's, it's a platform where parties and tribunals can communicate and upload documents and they can basically have a full, complete file of their ongoing arbitration. Everything's available on one page. It doesn't look dissimilar to a social media page uh, with sort of the most recent updates at the top and procedural steps highlighted in the, in the history if you scroll down. So it covers everything from case management to communication both between the parties and the parties in the arbitral tribunal, but also the arbitral tribunal amongst themselves. There's a secure area of the platform that that arbitral tribunals can deliberate. There's also obviously ways to make your your submissions on the platform and to track the progress and the participants of the arbitration. Uh, The Case Connect system that HKIC operates is powered by Thomson Reuters and it was specifically designed for international arbitration. Uh, it is very, very reliable. And Touchwood, we haven't had any outage issues or the like since it was launched uh, two years ago, almost two years ago. It also has multiple security features that include banking-grade encryption, two-step authentica- authentication processes, full, set, full single tenancy, and services monitored, servers monitored 24-7. So if there were to be an issue, we and Thompson Reuters would be able to address it very, very quickly. Yeah, it, it sounds super timely and, and, and really fantastic. I imagine it would really streamline processes and alleviate um, administrative burdens, particularly at, at the centre's end. Uh, to what extent, if at all, does, does the centre use AI-driven analysis or other technologies to facilitate its work? <laughs> I'm getting asked about AI a lot at the moment, <laughs> so I always smile when I hear about it. I think I think the law firms out there are very keen to get involved in the AI discussion as they should be and as, you know, their clients are expecting them to be in response to current trends and the way that that operates and having been in private practice for several years beforehand, I fully know that, I fully understand why that's happening. I think from an institutional perspective, we are going to have to take some time to look at it. Uh, Institutions, I'm not saying necessarily that we're conservative, but we need to think about our role in all of this. We want to give our users a reliable, robust, predictable service. We want to be timely. We want human decision makers in there as part of it. That's one of the reasons we like to think that they come to us. So the whole AI discussion, I think, is something that will take a bit of time. I think, as I mentioned before, part of our popularity and the reason people come to us is our robust decision-making processes. I can imagine there'd be a, a bit of misunderstanding in the market, to say the least, if it was to be revealed that we were delegating those decision-making processes to an AI platform or something similar. In addition to institutions collating and communicating their own data, recent years have also witnessed an increase in the collation of such information uh, across institutions. The Centre's Case Digest platform details approaches to procedural rules um, and issues under not just the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre's rules, but also under rules in heavy use in other institutional settings, particularly the 1976 and 2013 Unsatural Arbitration Rules. 
To what extent does the centre look to the practice of other institutions when it's administering cases or deciding on future approaches, including possible reform strategies? Uh, thanks, Esme. I think this is this is a very uh, topical question. If I could just take a step back, just, just on our Case Digest platform, the reason we're including summaries from the UNSU trial arbitration rules is because we have a set of procedures from 2015 that sets out how we will offer support in an UNSU trial rules arbitration, and there's quite a few clauses out there that provide for us to give that support. So we are putting... Uh, summaries onto case digests that deal with at least cases where we've had some sort of administrative role, if not the full administrative role under our 2018 AAR rules. Uh, with respect to looking at other institutions, it, it comes and goes, I think, depending on the issues that are coming up. Uh, as an institution, of course, HKIAC always tries to keep up with what other arbitral institutions are doing. Equally, we wouldn't op- adopt things blindly without taking you know, thinking long and hard about the pros and cons of the approach taken by the other institution and why they're doing it. Uh, From our perspective, we're currently in our rules revision process, which takes place about every five years, where we are looking at recent rules of other institutions as part of that process to decide whether or not we adapt our current set of rules from 2018 um, in the same way as other institutions have changed theirs or whether we keep what we've already got Uh, We're very fortunate at HKIAC to have a lot of continuity in our rules revisions over the years and we have a lot of people on these committees that have sat on previous rules revision committees. So people do recall discussions from previous revisions and we can then weigh in on whether we think something has changed since the last revision that would warrant us taking a different approach now or revising a rule that we hadn't revised before, for example. In terms of our case administration, we don't really look at other institutions in the day-to-day, firstly because we think our practices are established and work well, but also because institutions are actually quite different in the way they administer Um, day-to-day. To that same end, a lot of what might be useful for one institution might not necessarily be useful for another, and a lot of what goes on in the background won't necessarily be in the public domain of what institutions are doing anyway, since a lot of what happens at institutions is, of course, based on the rules and they set the framework, but there's also a lot of practice points that develop um, within an institution that for several reasons would not necessarily be applicable or useful for another institution. Having said that, occasionally we'll be confronted with something and in a process of resolving an issue, we'll look at other institutions and how they're addressing that particular point to the extent that we can find that out. Um, But it's always a matter of investigating and reflecting on what someone else is doing rather than just adopting another institution's approach. Since taking over the role of Secretary-General at at the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre in August last year, you've been exceptionally busy. Um, You conducted an excellent interview at at Clua Arbitration Blog, which I really commend our listeners uh, to go and read. I thought it was a really candid and and really interesting snapshot of of the type of work that you're engaged in at the moment. Um, But you've also appeared to speak on a, a huge range of panels at international conferences and events, including most recently um, London International Disputes, which 
week, which was also covered in detail on the blog. In your view, given kind of the extent of effort you're going to to participate in these sorts of outreach activities, what do you think is the most tangible benefit of these types of efforts uh, to communicate the work of the centre to the broader arbitration community? I think it's actually a really basic thing. It's for me, um, it's it's enough when someone comes to me after a presentation and says, "You know what? I didn't understand how the interim measures arrangement worked, or I didn't under I didn't know it existed." And thanks to your presentation, I'm going to go back and tell my clients that we should consider HKIC slash Hong Kong frown X dispute. And I had that actually recently in Melbourne, and as, as I'm sure everyone's heard, Esme and I are both Australian, and I, I met with a group of people there and, uh, you know, Hong Kong was locked up or locked in, I should say, for quite a long time and it was very, very difficult to get the message out there as to what the benefits of doing arbitration in Hong Kong are and were. So one of my first sort of orders of business when I came in used my coming into the role as a, as a new SG of the centre to remind people about the excellent advantages you have in arbitrating in Hong Kong. And when I was in Melbourne at this event, I actually had that precise thing happened. I had someone come up to me afterwards and say, you know what, um, there was a lot of information out there about Hong Kong and we were telling our our users to go to other jurisdictions in the region. But after listening to you speak today, I'm actually going to go back and look at some of this in more detail. And this person asked for further information, which I was happy to provide. And that was a really good experience. And that that's what I see as a real tangible benefit because sitting in an institution, you're in the engine room, so much of what you do every day is just self-understood. And you forget that people out there don't know much about HKIAC arbitration or don't know that the interim measures arrangement is there or don't know that if you want to enforce in China, in mainland China, HKIAC in Hong Kong is probably your best bet to get an enforceable award or at least an award that will ultimately be enforced. So I find just that sort of teaching part of it and hearing what the market is thinking about Hong Kong and then being able to address concerns, I think that's a very rewarding part of what I do. As its name suggests, uh, HKIAC is a, an institution based in Hong Kong. Um, and so how, how does arbitrating in Hong Kong impact on the enforcement of arbitral awards? So like the interim measures arrangement, there's also an enforcement arrangement between Hong Kong and China. Um, as you uh, may know, Hong Kong is a member of the New York Convention through by virtue of being part of China. But, of course, since there are two different legal systems within China, uh, we need an enforcement mechanism between Hong Kong and the mainland. So while we have uh, an enforcement arrangement that basically tracks the New York Convention grounds vis-a-vis Hong Kong and China, uh, one thing that you can really see a difference in the practice is the practice of enforcing Hong Kong awards by mainland Chinese courts. And we try to track uh, our awards once they leave our... (laughs) our supervision, so to speak, and that's a very um, difficult thing to do since you won't really know what's happening with an award unless there's an issue with it. But as far as we are aware, there's been over 70 awards from HKIC that have um, been, been put forward for enforcement in mainland Chinese courts, and there's only three that have been refused enforcement in the last 20 years. So we think that's a very powerful statistic as well because also coming from private practice before I moved into this role, one of the major concerns of any client is, yes, arbitration's all well and good, 
but how am I going to get my money at the end of the day? Will I have to go to enforcement? What are my chances of getting a successful enforcement if I have a favourable award? So we find that this arrangement also should give our users and does give our users a lot of comfort in coming to Hong Kong and knowing that they will have mechanisms available to them at the end of the day to ensure that they have a clear path to payment. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive track record of, of success there. Um, and I understand that in coming months, Clua Arbitration's Practical Insights tool is going to be expanded to encompass some of these topics. So it's it'll be interesting uh, to read more about this practice and, and these innovations when those updates are released. Mariel, thank you so much for joining the podcast and for sharing these terrific insights with our listeners. I'm, I'm really, I really enjoyed the conversation and I'll, I'll look forward to hopefully continuing uh, it with, with you and, and with the arbitration community in the months and years to come, particularly with Hong Kong set to host ICA 2024. It'll be really nice uh, to have that, that conference in this region. Um, so thanks so much for joining me and, and thanks to our listeners. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's been a very enjoyable conversation. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit cluerlaw.com or follow us on social media.